Dear Heavenly Father, you are so, so good to us. And you are faithful. And God, you have brought us the study every week. And Lord, I just thank you that being here together today is something that you delight in. And it's a testimony of your providence and your goodness in our life. So we thank you for that. I pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we would see your truth once again afresh. We need your gospel illumination so that when we leave here, it's not just more information, but we have hearts that are drawn closer to you, and we ask for you to do this this morning. Thank you so much for bringing us here. We pray these things in your name. So AT&T is working on our phones. So if they are ringing, um, that is what's going on. So we're just going to have to work with that little bit of distraction. Um, but I don't know about you all. Concerning the study, I think that we heard we're having a study and we were all like, oh my goodness, fellowship, we get to be around other people. And we didn't realize how much of an adventure that we were going to go on these past eight weeks. Wow. So in... Uh, February, I get a phone call from a family member in Hawaii. It's one of my, my husband has a family member who lives there. And he called and he said, do y'all want to come? And I told Josh, I said, don't think about it. Let's just do it. I hate to pack and I stay, I go to bed early. But by that night I was packed at 11 o'clock and we were going. I was determined. Two weeks later, we left. Okay. We just, seriously, this, this never happens. My mom watched the kids. We went to Hawaii, and we got there, and it was a whirlwind of an experience. We had so much fun. We didn't know if we were going to be up on the top of a volcano or down at the bottom. We didn't know if we were going to be hot, if we were going to be cold, if we were going to be wet. I didn't wear makeup the entire time, and I had pictured myself going and just sitting on a beach and relaxing, right? So it wasn't that. It wasn't that at all, okay? In fact, we did wild boar hunting, and I went surfing, and we did the volcano. I mean, I was exhausted, and it was so much that I didn't really get to take it in until we got home because it was so much adventure and so much excitement. And I kind of felt like the study was a little bit like my Hawaii trip. <laughs> now, Nancy took us to places that I, I mean, I have chills as I'm thinking about it. Perhaps you were reading that, that text and, and you, she just took you somewhere and you had to stop because you thought, I have to read that again because it was so glorious and so amazing. And then in the next breath, you'd hear something more fantastic. And then we'd turn to another prophet, and then it was a prophet that would hit another area. This study was so providential and so exciting, but it was, it was fast-paced, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And I don't know about you, uh, but I got the most um, out of, so I got the most out of my Hawaii trip when I had come home and I looked at those pictures, I took a deep breath, and I looked back on it, okay? So today is not going to be a whole lot of new information, all right? What we're going to do instead is we are just going to re-look at what we did. Um, and, and we're going to, and, and by the way, Cherie was going to teach today, but she had a doctor's appointment that she could not reschedule. So I, I love the topic of the prophets, and this is really fun for me, so... Um, the three prophets that you all worked on this week were Micah, Habakkuk, and Malachi. And in the very beginning of Nancy's study, she said there were three 
main things that every single prophet focused on, okay? And in every prophet, sure enough, we saw these three themes. They were sin, judgment, and hope, okay? And those three themes are repeated in every prophet. So what I'm going to do is for the three prophets that we did, and each of you picked one, I'm just going to touch on those three themes, all right? So when we got to Micah, Micah was in the northern kingdom, so we have the northern kingdom, we have the southern, the northern kingdom is taken over by Assyria, the southern kingdom is taken over by Babylon, all right? And just so you know, in prophecy, anytime their prophets are talking about the north, they're talking about Assyria or Babylon, but if you look at a map, this always confused me, they are to the east. The kingdoms are to the east. So it begs the question, well, who are they really talking about if the armies come from the north? Well, there's a huge desert in the way. So anytime those armies came, and that was, that was judgment, they would come from the north because they'd have to go around that desert, and then they would come down. And that was a sign of, of whether or not they had obeyed what, what God said that they were supposed to do. Okay, so that was, that was the pattern. So Micah is in the north, and the northern kingdom is destroyed first. So for those of you who read Micah, the three themes, sin, judgment, and hope, uh, it's for concerning sin, the priests in Micah are saying peace. And, but there's rampant sin at the, same, at the same time. In fact, every single commandment in the book of Micah, for those of you who read it, is broken. And this is what the prophet is drawing their attention to. And, you know, whenever the prophets are talking about sin, we can relate to that because that's what's happening in our world. You know, we, that's the part where Nancy would pull us in and our lecturers would pull us in. We could identify with the sins that were happening in Israel because it, it looks nothing different than our world today. And in specifically in Micah's kingdom, um, there are, you know, there's injustice, there's um, idolatry. Idolatry is always happening. Um, it, it specifically, there was social injustice, okay? And what that meant is that they were supposed to be caring for people. They're supposed to be having compassion. They're supposed to be drawing the other nations in. All of this was supposed to be happening because they were God's covenant people. But we know it wasn't, and that's why every prophet then turns to judgment, which is the second point. Judgment Assyrians are coming, and that's what Micah is warning them about. If you don't obey, then God is going to send judgment. That's a result of the covenant. Uh, the promises in the, in the old covenant, God said, if you do this, then you will have blessing. If you don't, I'm bringing a curse. The curse was exile, and so this is what's happening. So the Assyrians are coming. And then third, we see hope. And specifically what, what God reveals to Micah is we are saying what the Lord requires, and we are learning what God wants. And he tells us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And then we also learn that a shepherd king is coming from, from Bethlehem. So that was, those were kind of the nuggets for those of you who did Micah that you got out of that study, and there were even more. All right? So a whole lot happened in Micah, but we saw the sin, we saw the judgment, and then we saw hope. And then for those of you who studied Habakkuk in the southern kingdom— so the capital there, does anyone remember? This is Jerusalem. And they are not, so the southern kingdom, they're not, they're not the first ones to go. They're the second. And so they don't heed the warnings of the first 
of the of the southern kingdom or of the northern kingdom falling. They don't heed those warnings, and so um, what happens? We see injustice and we see hopelessness abounding again. The very things that they weren't supposed to do, they they or they were doing, and the things that they were supposed to be doing, they were not doing. They were not obeying the covenant, and so once again, judgment comes. And specifically in Habakkuk, um, what they're learning is that, and what the prophet is learning, is that God is going to use evil people to bring about his good purposes. Okay, and that was tough for Habakkuk. But that, that is what the Babylonians are. Those are the Chaldeans. It would have been a terrifying thing for him, especially to know that what had already happened to his neighbors and the, and the brothers that he loved in the north was going to happen to him. And so we have our, we, we, are, we, are, we are drawn in by these prayers and what he's singing. Or, and, and, these, and he's saying back to God, these psalms that he's saying back to God. And then we have the hope, okay? So sin, judgment, and hope. The hope of Habakkuk is that despite all this, God can be trusted despite what is happening. He is still in control. He's still on the throne. Justice is going to be done, and, um, and mercy is going to be served. And so, therefore, put your faith in God. And so he's, he's saying the hope is that God still has a plan. He has not forgotten Israel. He's going to wrap this up, okay? So, so that is Habakkuk. And then, and then finally, for those of you who picked Malachi, man, we have now the exiles who've been taken to exile, and now they're coming back. You think that they they'd be they'd have hearts that would be different and they would be obeying the Lord, but are they obeying the Lord? They are not. They're not obeying God. And so, in Malachi, what we see is we see corruption. We see that the people are apathetic, and most shocking is they are still hard-hearted, despite the Lord's mercy in protecting them those seventy years in captivity and bringing them home. All of the sins that were present the first round are still present. And sometimes I think that the prophet Malachi is just the Lord saying, you know what, even in the end, even when so many of my promises, I was willing to make them come true, you still didn't obey. Malachi is a very critical prophet. It is also the last prophet before a 400-year silence, and we get John the Baptist, okay? It's a, it's, and we have that. So we have that. We have Malachi, and then we have these years of silence, and then and then the Lord, the Lord comes. So he he was kind of the last voice, okay, before this before this um, silent period. And we have to ask ourselves, despite the prophets, despite these three prophets and all the other ones, did the people ever heed? Did they ever listen to what to what the prophets were saying? No. They didn't. Despite all of the pleading, despite all the prophets, they, they did not, they, their hearts did not change. And every prophet pointed to the hope that they, that they had, but they didn't see it in its ultimate fulfillment. And so they were waiting during those years of silence. So I don't know about you all, but when I, you know, when I first thought of prophecy and you hear the prophets, most of us think of prophecy, don't we? I mean, if someone asks you what are the prophets about, most people think that they're about about prophecy, don't they? Yeah, they think they're about prophecy. But but what would you say? I want to hear from you. What would you say the prophets are about having done the study? Endurance and faithfulness. Yes. Okay. Speaking for the Lord. Okay. Anything else? Warning? 
Yes. The warning. Anything else? So there's always encouragement. It was always warning. There was a warning of judgment. But, but why, was, why were these things happening? Why do we have the book of the prophets? Why do they, ha- why do they have to be written? What, what is the Lord getting at? Point to Christ. Point to Christ. Mm-hmm. The ultimate fulfillment. Uh-huh. So there's these different layers of, of things that are happening. And I would like to point out that if you were to put the nail on the head in terms of what the purpose of the prophets were, is that their purpose was to point back to the covenant of Deuteronomy, okay? The most important book in the whole Testament, believe it or not, would be the book of Deuteronomy because that's where the old, the terms of the old covenant was found because God is a covenant God. He wants to have a relationship with us, and our greatest problem is that we've broken that, prob- that because of sin. So where we see in Adam, that here's Adam in the garden, and God gives him a covenant, believe it or not, okay? Some people would say this is not a covenant. I would argue it is, but he goes to them in the garden. And what does he say? He says, if you obey, then this, and if you don't obey, then this. It's exactly what he did to the Israelites. And Adam doesn't obey, and so what does God do? He exiles him out of the garden, okay? The covenant is broken. So then we have Israel who comes in, and God, we see, and you know this now having sat in the study, he wanted a relationship with his people again. He chose Israel. He wooed them. We, with with all, I mean, our leaders did a fantastic job of pointing to the fact that God wanted this relationship with his people. He wanted a covenant relationship. Now, this is, this is what one of the biggest takeaways from what I'm saying is that because God is a covenant God, relationships are, a relationship is conditional. So my husband and I, we're realtors, and, uh, and, and we were talking last night, and, um, and, and you know, right now people are holding on to their houses, and a lot of people are selling um, but we, we do have some clients, and so we were talking, we were like, what's the common denominator of, of the people that are selling their homes? It's divorce. Most of our clients who are selling their homes are divorced. We have six clients. Now, you all mind you, we, we're working with about 10 right now, okay? More than half is because of divorce. And I told my husband, I said, well, we don't need to sell their house. We just need to go form a relationship. We need to fix these marriages. He's like, Sarah, calm down. They're, they're not all believers. They're not all going to listen to you. Um, but, you know, the point is, is that I, I've been thinking about this, and in every one of those, of those relationships that we have with our clients, one of the two people aren't committed. Either there's been marital unfaithfulness, or they don't want to be in a relationship. And at the end of the day, that's what we see in Israel, and that's what the prophets are showing us. Their hearts, they didn't want a relationship with God, and and I, my favorite prophet is Ezekiel because he takes us into the temple and it shows us the Lord's heart. And what does it show us? It shows us not a God who's angry. It shows us a God who's hurt and he's disappointed and he's sad because they, they don't want a relationship with him. And so it's the, the testimony of the prophets and the, and the many years of kings that we had, the testimony of the prophets is that despite God speaking through the prophets and pleading with them for reconciliation, 
They said, no, thank you. But we need to see that God was faithful to continue to press into them and plead for reconciliation. And that is what the prophets are doing. They're saying, be reconciled to God. He made a covenant with you. He is faithful. Love him. Now, there were a lot of commands. I completely get it, but I can summarize this for you so easy. If you were to take every single command that Israel broke, okay, and you wrote them out, they're going to fall under two categories. It's going to be, in a more specific sense, idolatry and social injustice. Every single one. Every single one. Idolatry, failure to love God, and failure to love others. They didn't love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. is isn't Deuteronomy. They didn't love others. And, and every single prophet, the three you all studied this week, and then the prophets we went through, and then I think the six, how many we missed? We did nine, 15. So every prophet was calling them. They're, they're saying, you broke covenant. You broke covenant. You didn't want this, but pleading with them for reconciliation. And we all know, do they do it? No, they don't. They don't. But God, but God, he has a plan. So the primary reason of the prophets was to call them back to the covenant because that's what he wanted. God, in order for him to remove the curse, has to have a faithful covenant partner that keeps the commandments. It had to happen. And he gives the, the whole testament plenty of time and tells the entire story, look, here's the case against mankind. You weren't faithful. So his own hand works salvation when he comes on that scene. And what does Jesus Christ do? He keeps the terms of the covenant and he perfectly obeys God, and he perfectly loves man. That's what he does. Those two things. That's what he does. So Israel, in order to come to the Lord, does need new hearts. And we see in Ezekiel that God is going to give them the hearts that are soft, that turn toward God and want to have a relationship with him. We are that we experience what Israel in the Old Testament, except for the remnant who were faithful to him, there were people who were saved. There was a remnant. It was the remnant that came back in the days of Malachi. There were people, the prophets were faithful to him. We see people like David, uh, like Joshua. We see people that loved him with all their hearts. So they were saved the same way we were, looking forward to the promise. But in general, the nation was to imitate a son, okay? So uh, taking this back a little further, Moses uh, comes to Pharaoh, and the Lord says, go to Pharaoh and tell him that, um, that, that I want my son. I, Israel's my son. So Israel is referred to a son, okay? It's kind of a typology where, where, uh, where God, it's foreshadowing something that God's going to do in the future. But what he wanted was a, a faithful covenant partner because in a covenant, you have two people who are faithful, and they, they want to be together, and they, and, they, and they love each other. But that is something that God requires, okay? So hold on to that. Um, so just another little story. Uh, my husband and I, where are we on time? Um, my husband, so let's see, in 2000, uh, so I got saved 20, I don't know, in 1998-ish, kind of like that. And I told God he could do it every one with my life. And, uh, and 
and I said, I, I do not want to teach, and I don't want to work with youth were my two conditions. And within, <laughs> within six months, I was teaching and working with youth, uh, specifically in California. And I remember I got a call from my boss, and she said, Sarah, we have no work for you in Atlanta, Georgia. If you want to work for us, and I, and I knew that, that God wanted me in this job. I fought him long enough. You got to go to this place called Madera, California. And so I went, oh, okay. That sounds, maybe I have to leave everything. But you know what? I could learn how to surf. I could, I, I mean, I, it's, it's hot there. I can do this. And so she called me in, in July of 2001. I was gone in August of 2001. 9-11 happened in September. and October, I meet my husband, okay? So I meet Josh, and we date nine months, get married, uh, because California was not what I anticipated, okay? Um, and I, I'm going to tell you all my story about California. So, so I lived in the Central Valley. So if you, if you straighten California out, let's pretend like it's straight, it, there's a mountain range here and a mountain range here. You have the Coastal Range, and then you have the Sierra Nevada Range, and the Central Valley, so sometimes in shows they talk about the valley in L.A. This is not that valley. This is the Central Valley. It's long brown, and I ha for a lack of better terms, it was not a very pretty place, I didn't think. It was harsh economically. It was harsh politically. It was harsh spiritually. Oh, my word, there was oppression on that place. And I, I came from Louisville, Kentucky. I went to Sacred Heart, you know. I mean, I, I, very different, okay? So, so here I am, and, and I'm in this place, and it is, it's, it's kind of terrible. And, uh, but, but, you know, I'm in love, and California's cool, and whatever. And so, you know, we get married in that, that same year. By August, we're married. And, uh, and I look at my husband, and I said, uh, so you ready to go back? You ready to go back, Kentucky now? Because, you know, you're tall, and you like basketball. And he said, I am never moving to Kentucky. <laughs> and he gave me two reasons. This is what's funny. One was because of my family. And by the way, they're friends now. But number, <laughs> number two, I'm going I'm to I'm throw him under the bus. Uh, but he said, there's too many white people. I'm not kidding you. That was his reason. He goes, there's way too many white people there. That makes me feel totally uncomfortable. Now, uh, it's true. Those were his two reasons. Uh, now, he grew up in East L.A., and he was, he was a minority, but he, he, I think he thought he was Hispanic. So, uh, so, so that's, that's Josh, okay? That's my husband. So, uh, so, this is so this is so different for me. And so I had, I, had, I had just been hit by, you know, a whirlwind. So first, Jesus freak, family. Uh, my fa I, I was the first person to love Jesus in my family. So I just was kind of the, the black sheep. So I, I have nothing, and here I'm stuck in this place. It's terrible, and then it's smoggy. It's it's like it's like there's it's agriculture, and allergies are terrible. And then it, anyway, it was awful. And then I get married, and my husband is like, I'm never moving. Uh, but I needed hope. I needed hope in that time, and I remember that when we'd have a rain, that fog would drop, and I could see those mountain ranges. I could see those mountain ranges, and they brought me hope, okay? And on one side, the Sierra Nevada range is kind of like end-time prophecy, okay? It's like, so we're, we're, we're right now in the already or the not yet, right? So the prophecies in the future, we don't see them yet. We don't know what's going to happen with those future prophecies, and they look like a long brushstroke. That's, how, that's what future prophecies are like. And I love that Nancy didn't take us and tell us what every future prophecy because it gets really dangerous and we don't, we don't fully know, okay? But that's the Sierra Nevada range. But the other range, okay, is the, or sorry, that was the coastal range. The other range is the Sierra Nevadas. And, and we could 
they were gorgeous. And we could go to those mountains and just, and just, we would just revel in each one. I mean, Yosemite, you couldn't just go there once. You'd have to go there three times a year. And every time you'd go, you'd want to look at a different facet of it. It was amazing. So despite my difficult circumstance, I had the mountains that were a reprieve and a hope for me. And mind you, I will tell you that I stayed in California for 14 years. So I got to know those mountains very well in that valley, in that circumstance. And I had a house where I could see mountains on one side and I could see mountains on the other. And there's never a day where I saw those mountains and I didn't praise the Lord because I knew that he still had a plan. He was still in control. And, and whether he kept me in Madeira or not, and I had to leave that on the altar a lot, he, it was still going to be good. But the point, of the, pro, the point of the mountains, okay, is that when we would go see those mountains, you know, every peak revealed something more spectacular. And we can look back on prophecies that already happened, and we look back on the prophecies of the prophets, and Nancy and, and our ladies hit so many of those peaks that what I want you all to do over the summer and in future months, in future years, is that when you hit one of those peaks again and, and, and like you, you want to think about one of those older prophecies, just go there and settle there and look at it and worship. I liken it to people who go to mountains sometimes, and it's like they just worship the mountain, and you see all these tree huggers. And they're like, this is, mountain is so gorgeous. But they miss the maker. It's meant to point us to the Lord that then put those mountains there in the first place. So, so that, is, that is the point of the mountains, and that is the point of the prophets that when they point to those mountains and now we see them, now we having seen Christ come and having seen him up close and having, and having experienced him freeing us from sin, the sin that Israel could not walk away from, we are freed from and we know that. We have reason to worship him every day, every a thousand times a day. Every time he takes us to him, we can go there again and again and revel in it. And we don't have to be scared and intimidated of the prophets minimizing them to telling us something that tickles our fantasy about the future anymore because what they do is those peaks show us Christ, who we know and who lives in us. That is what the prophets, that is what they do. So... In terms of all of those mountains, I just want to hover for just a moment on what I would consider the highest peaks of those prophets. Other people may be looking at those peaks from different angles. These are my favorite. Um, one I've already touched on, mm -hmm. but every single thing that Israel failed to do, Christ accomplished. Everything they failed at, he did. In this we see that he is the faithful son. In fact, in John, when, when the heavens open, you think if the heavens are going to open, I think it only happens two times in the New Testament and maybe two or three in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and then I think Joshua. Anyway, it's a pretty big deal. And what does the Lord say? He says, this is my son. That would have made Israel stop right there. Because in the Old Testament, they would have known themselves and identified themselves as to be the son. But yet you're telling me this man is the son, but it's the Lord saying, this is my son. And then what does he say next? In whom I'm well pleased. And what does he mean by in whom I'm well pleased? Well, mm -hmm. he, unlike Israel, is going to perfectly love God, love others. Love God, love others. 
And that's what he does. And the Lord declares it. This is my son in whom I well please. Right there. He is the faithful son that Israel was not, okay? Um, Second, in the Old Testament, we saw that Israel's purpose was to be a light. They were called again and again to be a light so the nations would come to them. But instead, the Lord sends the nations after them to destroy them. That is a terrifying, terrifying judgment that that happens. But what happens is that the Lord Mm -hmm. turns it on its head. In Isaiah, we see, and one of my favorite prophecies, it says, It is too light a thing that you, and he's referring to Christ, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah and bring bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it's not just about these tribes. It's not just about them returning to the land, okay? But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And this is what the Lord said to Abraham in the beginning. I'm going to give the nations to you as your inheritance. Who is he talking about? Paul tells us that the person who inherits the nations is the son because Israel failed, but Christ is faithful. And so he inherits He inherits the nations. He inherits the whole earth. We are a result. We are here because he was faithful in his task. So he is the light to the nations as he reaches the Gentiles. We see that in Luke 2.32 when Simeon says to him, his prophecy, I love it, one of my favorite prophecies in the New Testament, he's been waiting to see the Messiah, and out of all the things that come out of his mouth as he's standing on those temple steps, this just kills me, he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. In other words, he's saying connect the dots. They were to be a light, but this baby is a light to bring the nations to me. So that happens. And I love this. This is just, this is just something that, that I love. But according to Peter Gentry, one of my professors uh, that I love, uh, he said when Jesus says to Peter and Andrew that he's going to make them fishers of men, he's referring to, directly to Jeremiah 16, 16 and saying that he will use his followers to bring the exiles home. So, so the fishers of men in the Old Testament, when, when, he, when he goes to his disciples and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, the exile is happening. It's, it's a greater exile to be freed from sin. That's what that means. And he is freeing us from sin. We are the exiles that are coming home when we turn from sin and we obey God, fulfilling that and walking in covenant with him because of what Christ has done when he reconciled himself with humanity by what he did on the cross. So finally, uh, he, Christ establishes God's saving rule and reign and he ushers in a new humanity. That is going to be a topic for another day, and I could talk about it till I'm blue in the face, um, but it's really exciting, and I'm running out of time. Um, but the last point I wanted to make is that the greatest peak of end time, or, or the greatest peak, I should say, of our study is really it's, it's solving our greatest need, which is our fractured relationship with God. And, and we have that. We have that because Jesus Christ was the faithful son. And Israel shows us and magnifies the things that Christ fulfilled. So if you want to know the son and you want to get Jesus, go to the prophets again and again and again and realize that by the time you get to the New Testament and you look back, you can see so much more when you see what God desired in covenant faithfulness. And everywhere they fall short, he was faithful. 
So um, when I, we went to Hawaii and I looked back, the other thing that I realized in hindsight is that it wasn't just about me going and having an adventure. Although it was such an adventure and I needed a break, it wasn't just about me finally surfing. I got to surf there. I don't know if you missed that, but when I went to California, I wanted to surf, but I went to Hawaii and I stood up for a brief second. I sent some of you a picture. Uh, I got to surf. It meant so much to me. That now you know why. Um, but the Lord was like, I, when I got home, I was like, oh, he knew I needed to spend more time with my husband. It was really, at the end of the day, just about the relationship. And so the final exhortation I wanted to give to you is that we spent these eight weeks together. We'll do something, good Lord willing, uh, in the fall again. But I just want you this summer to remember that all of this is, it, it, it's not knowledge. It's not stuff for us to just go, oh, I understand this stuff now and I get this stuff. It's meant to draw us to our relationship with the Lord in worship and in walking with him again. And so I just, I want, and that's my prayer for you as we leave, that, that we would look past this and see the heart of God who has reconciled us to himself, who loves us, who is for us and not against us, um, and, and, and that we would draw near to him in relationship, knowing that he loves us um, more than we could possibly know. So let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your greatest mountains of truth have Christ in the center of them. So God, we worship him now as the fulfillment of all of your promises and, and everything. He's just, we just love him. And we thank you, God, that the prophets have taken us to him again and shown us his glory. Help us to go forward seeking more of the glory that we touched in the study and the prophets and in your word. And help us remember that it's not about knowledge, but it's about being close to you. So draw us to yourself. We love you, Lord. Amen.